Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy, the host of Theana Money. This week on the podcast, I'm dropping uh, my sermon on Romans chapter 13, verses 5, 6, and 7. It is the sermon I preached right after the one I dropped for the previous episode on the first four verses. Of Romans chapter 13. So last week more got into the typical Romans 13 says you have to obey whatever the government says and like that idea and where that idea is wrong and what Romans 13 1 to 4 actually says. And then these three verses you'll be listening to with this episode get more into paying taxes and thus I spent a good portion after looking through the exegesis of those three verses to talk about what I'm at the current moment, believe biblical taxes would look like. So I hope you all enjoyed this and learn a lot from it. And if you do, please tell your friends about it and send this episode to them. So let's jump in and God bless. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of that wrath, but also because of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let's take uh, one more moment to pray before we get started. God, thank you for today. Please uh, help me to teach your truth accurately from what this passage teaches and uh, the uh, other passages we will look at to help us better understand uh, this passage. Uh, May all of it communicate your truth, not be my own ideas, but be what you would like us to understand and to apply from your word. And may this be to your glory and uh, uh, worship you through it. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so in uh, introduction, I want to say one thing that Some people might think, I don't know how much people here might think this, but a lot of people outside of this room, not saying like in this church outside of this room, but like in general in our culture, would probably say that what we're looking at today and what we looked at last week as we are in the first half of Romans 13 is me preaching too politically. And a lot of people would uh, say that, like, oh, leave the political things to DC and the pastors do with only the spiritual things. But With that, I want to say the spiritual things and the political things come together. There is a separation of church and state, although um, I would like to define that term and not let other people do it, but it is not a separation of God and state. Thomas Jefferson himself, the man from whom the expression, and the American context at least, separation of church and state comes from, did not believe there was a separation of God and state, though he himself was not even actually a Christian. Um, So, and related to that, I want to say, uh, the minority of uh, pastors that were maybe more than a minority who were really fighting against some of the things going on in Germany during World War II. 
Uh, I don't want to be too hard on them. I think some didn't speak out harder against it because to a certain degree, they didn't know entirely what was going on. But the pastors that spoke out against uh, what was going on in Germany in World War II, those German pastors, many of whom probably ended up in concentration camps themselves for merely speaking out against Germany, and to whatever degree they knew the Holocaust was going on, speaking out against it, I think many Germans didn't really know exactly what was happening with the concentration camps until afterwards. But to whatever degree they knew what was happening, that they were speaking against it, uh, the, the, the people who were speaking against the evils of that, to the pastors in uh, America in the 1800s who spoke against slavery, to the uh, pastors who in the 1700s and early 1800s in the United Kingdom in Britain who spoke against slavery, would you say that they were speaking too politically? Or would we say that, uh, oh, because the topic was important, it was okay for them to preach politically? Or maybe more accurately, because that was in the past and not today, it was okay for them to speak politically. I like reading about pastors who died 100 years ago who preached politically. I don't like pastors today preaching politically because they're alive still. We, we have a lot more tolerance of saying someone did something really good in the past and yet being against people saying the same things in our time. Kind of like the Pharisees who uh, would talk about how great the prophets were, the prophets that died 500 years ago, yet hated Jesus and John the Baptist. And Jesus told them, you're just like your ancestors who killed those prophets. Don't pretend to me like you like them so much. Uh, so I want to say, when people like me preach and our preaching gets into politics, we are being like those pastors before us, whether it be in 1930s and 1940s Germany or somewhere else. Now, the topic today, as we are in Romans 13, 5 to 7, I would not put on the same level as those pastors preaching against what was going on in the 1930s and 40s in Germany. Although, if a topic comes up like abortion, shortly after Roe v. Wade was overturned, I preached a sermon on abortion. When topics like that come up, I would put myself in the same line as those pastors before me. So I think, though not every sermon should be a political diatribe, the scripture should be the political diet, or sorry, the scripture should be the diet of the church. And when the scripture gets political, like in Romans 13, 1 to 7, then the sermon should get political. But We've been walking through Romans for the better part of two years, and up until Romans 13, it rarely, if ever, got political. So I just kind of want to say that, in case anyone's thinking it's getting really political. I mean, look at verses 8 through the end of the chapter with verse 14. Romans 13 is really not very political after we're done with verse 7. So even if you don't like how political Romans 13 is right now, just wait until next week. It's going to not be nearly as political. But today, we are in verses 5 through 7. And in these verses... Paul has a lot to say about the civil magistrate and taxation. And so probably the three overriding points we're going to look at today is, one, government's right and obligation to do taxation. Two, the Christian's responsibility to pay it. And lastly, we're going to look at what a biblical taxation level looks like, because I think I can actually uh, make a biblical case for a very different taxation level than what is in America today using multiple passages in the Old Testament. Uh, so first, we're going to look at the first verse, verse 5. It says, therefore it is necessary to be in subjection. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of that wrath, but also because of conscience. 
So therefore, whenever we see the word therefore, we have to ask what is the therefore, therefore, as referring back to the first four verses we looked at last week. Um, and so therefore, in light of all that, it is necessary to be in subjection. It is necessary to submit to the government. And why is that? Paul gives two reasons. Because of that wrath and because of conscience. And so first, because of that wrath. Uh, remember what we looked at last week? The civil magistrate bears the sword to punish evildoers in this way, acting as a servant of God at the end of Romans chapter 12. God is the avenger. We should not avenge ourselves. God avenges in the final judgment, but also God leaves some vengeance here and now up to the civil magistrate to bear the sword as the minister of God. And so the civil magistrate bears the sword on criminals. That is how he avenges as the servant of God here and now before the final judgment. And uh, so because of that wrath, then we should submit to the government for fear of the negative consequences of disobeying the law, then we should, as much as we possibly can, try to obey the law. If you're a criminal, the civil magistrate, the government, will bear the sword on you. Obedience to civil magistrates should lead to fewer negative consequences in our life. Of course, bad things happen to everyone. We live in a fallen world, but if you do not do anything that gets you in trouble with the law, you should have fewer bad things in total happen to you than someone who gets in trouble with the law and has the political negative consequences on top of the various things everyone goes through in life. And so this is especially true when the government is a godly government, one that bases its law on the word of God. But this is also true when it is not a government that is uh, like that. If the government passes a law that goes beyond its bounds of authority and responsibility, you can obey, and if you can obey that law without sinning. Now, if the government makes it illegal to evangelize, we should, like the apostles in Acts, still evangelize anyways. But if the government has a law that I would say, biblically, the government should not have passed that law, but it is not sinful to obey whatever law was passed, then uh, you probably want to obey that law anyways, to avoid the negative consequences of whatever the penalties of the law are. So because of wrath, because of the penalties for breaking the law, it is good to, as much as we can, be in obedience to the government. But Paul also says, because of conscience, at the end of verse 5. Because of conscience. Christians have a higher reason to obey more than just uh, for fear of the negative consequences, having a clean conscience before God. I should not want to steal because there are consequences for theft. There are penalties if you get caught stealing something. But more than that, I should not want to steal because the Eighth Commandment says, Thou shalt not steal. Stealing is a sin, a sin that for the Christian, if you have ever stolen something, Jesus had to die on the cross and rise again to forgive you for that. So, like, one, I shouldn't want to, because of the wrath, the penalty of the civil magistrate, I shouldn't want to steal. But more than that, because it's a sin against God, I should not want to steal. That applies to everything that is both a sin and a crime. Not all sins are crimes, but to everyone that is both, that should apply to them. I don't want to do it for the penalties of getting caught, but more than that, I don't want to do it because it's a sin. Um, and uh, so there's that. There's just the plain 
having a clean conscience before God by obeying Romans 13 should be a reason to submit to the government for the sake of conscience. Uh, and so that should be our highest uh, concept of obeying Romans 13, having a clean conscience before God as it relates to the civil magistrate. But sometimes to have a clean conscience before God in your relationship to the civil magistrate requires you to disobey. Like I mentioned a minute ago, the apostles evangelizing after they were told not to, and they say, we will obey God rather than men, and they keep preaching the gospel even though it's illegal. Uh, this is what Christians in the underground church in China and other places around the world are doing today. They are preaching the gospel despite the consequences that could happen, despite that they could be the next Pastor Wang Yi, probably in prison from now until the day he dies, if he's even still alive at this moment, because of being a faithful pastor in China. Or distributing the word of God. Uh, several hundred years ago, some Christians, I believe this was in, the, uh, in Britain or in England, um, when it was under Catholic or Anglican rule, I don't remember all the details, uh, some, when it was illegal to, it was probably not Anglican, because I don't think they would have done this, but when it was illegal to disperse the Bible, they intentionally made little pocket Bibles, almost think like our Gideon New Testaments today that we have, those little tiny ones. They made them to fit in the palm of your hand, that way you could kind of tuck it against your hand with your thumb, and people wouldn't be able to see you had a Bible back there, and you could hand that Bible to someone else merely by shaking hands with them. It was pretty cool they were doing stuff like this to try to disperse scripture in a place where it was illegal to do so. You could just have a, get some of those made and then um, pass a Bible along to someone and everyone who saw you would think you just shook hands with him. And if they were caught, they would kill the person and dip the blood in the person's blood. Or sorry, dip the Bible in the person's blood after killing him. We still have some of those Bibles today. Half of it is the color of the original Bible. Half of it is the color of blood that has rusted over several centuries from being dipped in its previous owner's blood. Uh, so things like that. That is, you need to have a clean conscience before God by disobeying the government when they do something like saying you can't evangelize or it is illegal to possess scripture in your language. Uh, examples of this from the scripture could be Daniel and his friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they did the various things we see throughout the book of Daniel that caused them being thrown in a fiery furnace or thrown into a lion's den and various other things. Or, like, once again, the apostles in the book of Acts as evangelizing after being told not to. So I guess more or less, Romans 13 verse 5 is kind of a summary of verses 1 through 4, but also with the addition of this uh, concept of our conscience before God, adding our conscience before God into the summary of the first four verses. And then we move into uh, verse 6. Verse 6 says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this various thing. So because of this, at the beginning of verse 6, it functions pretty similarly to the therefore at the beginning of verse 5. Um, and now some people might say the because of this at the beginning of verse 6 refers back to the first four verses. Some people might say it refers to all five verses thus far, but really I don't think it makes a big difference either way because verse 5 was saying the same thing the first four verses are. Does it really change the meaning of verse 6 at all, whether it's referring to verses 1 through 4 or 1 through 5? Uh, so anyway, so this is referring to what's come before. That's the main point. Regardless of if five is included in the mix or not, this is referring to what's come before. Because of that, you, because of this concept we've looked at so far, you also pay taxes. 
because for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So because the civil magistrate is the servant of God, is the minister of God to bear the sword and carry out wrath on the evildoer, we pay taxes. So taxes are biblical. I know it's really popular to, or at least it was a few years ago, really popular to say, hashtag taxation is theft. And to that I have to say, uh, that's only partially true. There are unjust taxes, there are unbiblical taxes, but taxes in and of themselves, as in not all taxes, are wrong. If I had like my perfect idea of a Christian nation with a government completely submitted to the Bible and the vast majority of the citizens in that nation were all genuine, born-again, believing Christians, there would still be a taxes in that nation. They would be much lower than our taxes today, but in my hypothetical world that, because of my eschatology from the Bible, I think will probably happen thousands of years from now, I think there will still be taxes in that society. And so here in a bit, we're going to get into what I think those taxes would probably look like from the Bible, but we're looking at verses 5, 6, and 7 before we start looking into that. So rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to the duties and responsibilities that God has given them to punish criminals, to punish crimes, crimes being defined by Scripture or implications from Scripture, not the whims of whatever that ruler says is or is not a crime. And uh, that's at least how rulers should operate, not just rulers in America, not just rulers in Mexico and Canada or, you know, like rulers everywhere, whether they're on this continent or another one. Uh, so because rulers fulfill that vital role, then they should tax their citizens. They should receive taxes to do this work. The church and the state are both different governments established by God. The church receives God's tithe from the members, and the government receives its tax. Both of them use this, this money God has commanded people to pay to these different authorities in order to carry out their work. And so in verse 7, Paul says, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So render or pay to all what is due them. And this is in the context of the first six verses so far. So all about the civil magistrate and taxation. That's the context here. And so all four things in this verse, probably because of the context, are all referring to the civil magistrate. Uh, by itself, without context, then I would probably say that tax and custom refer to the civil magistrate, fear to God, and honor to more or less everyone as much as that person makes it capable for you to honor them. If we're talking about someone who's the fool from Proverbs, it might be a little bit more difficult, but as much as possible, honor to everyone. And those latter are still true. We fear God. We try to honor everyone as much as we can. I mean, Look back at chapter 12, verse 10, the second half. Giving preference to one another in honor. So Christians are to show honor to one another. Giving preference to one another in honor. But in this context of Romans chapter 13, all four of these are, in this context, referring to the civil magistrate, referring to the government. So tax, pretty well already looked at it in uh, verse 6. Custom, uh, from what I saw looking at, into this, custom seems to... Uh, more or less mean uh, like indirect taxes, 
tax, meaning more direct taxes, custom more indirect taxes. Um, probably in some way in the history of English language, custom in this sense is related to going through customs when you enter or exit the country. So the direct tax would probably be more like your property tax or your income tax. The indirect tax would probably be more like sales tax, fuel tax, uh, a road fee if there's some kind of toll road that is owned by the government, not by a private company, uh, tariffs, things like that. Uh, so tax and custom. Also fear is mentioned in this list. Fear to whom fear. And uh, I think this is more in the understanding of verse 3, back when it says, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. <coughs> or just in the idea of having respect for uh, the civil magistrate. Because there's a sense in which we should fear those in authority, and there's another sense in which we should fear God. Uh, we do not fear governmental authorities in the same way we fear God. Yes, like we respect both of them. Yes, we have a reverential awe for both of them. But like there's a, a deeper sense to that with God. You, uh, you do not have the same, uh, though you respect those in political authority over you, there is a respect you have for God that no human, regardless of whatever position, great or small they have, that you have for that person. You have a greater respect for God. So this is uh, basically meaning not to the extent we fear God, but to another extent we respect those in political position, give respect to those to whom respect is due. And lastly in the verse, honor to whom honor is due. Uh, in another passage in First uh, Peter 2.17, there Peter says, fear God and honor the king, or fear God and honor the emperor, in another translation. And so we are to honor civil magistrates, much like Paul says to honor every believer. Believers are to honor one another. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, we are also to honor the civil magistrate and the position that they have as, in some sense, they have some authority that comes from God, as verse 1 tells us. And so, uh, to basically pay taxes, to uh, honor the person in uh, political power, and also to show a certain amount of respect and uh, even if we disagree with them, um, then uh, we should still show some amount of honor to them. Even as we, to their faces, if possible, if you're able to get a meeting with one or a group of uh, people in political office, still show respect to them in that case. Uh, still tell them what they are doing is sinful, if they are doing something wrong. Tell them that they're doing something sinful, that they, before God, need to repent of what they are doing that is wrong, to turn away from it and do what is right, and also tell them they need to repent in another sense. They need to repent of their sin personally and believe the gospel. Because if they do not do both of those things, God will hold them accountable for what they are doing. But there's a big difference between doing that and uh, doing it in a not respectful, not honoring way. There's a big difference between basically saying something like, what the heck are you doing? Stop that, you idiot. There's like a difference between that and saying, sir, what you are doing is sinful and evil in the sight of God. As his servant, you must stop this and correct your course, course correct the situation. And I'm requesting of you and God is commanding of you to obey him and what you're doing. The latter one of those two shows an amount of respect and honor that the former one doesn't. So even as we disagree, even as we strongly disagree, there is still the command for respect and honor. And so 
moving from that and to talking about basically what would we understand as biblical taxation. Because something about taxation today seems too high, right? I think that's like not something controversial for people to say, that taxes seem too high today. Jesus, when asked about taxes, he said to render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. By the way, that, also like Romans 13 says, give to Caesar, give to the king, the political leader, the civil magistrate, because God tells us to do so. But everything doesn't belong to Caesar. The civil magistrate doesn't own you. The civil magistrate doesn't own all of your stuff. Modern taxation basically seems like the government thinks they have a right to every dime you make, and the fact that they let you keep some of it means you should think they're so kind and generous to you because they let you keep some of your income. They didn't take all of it from you. That's more or less the way you, they, people think about it today. You hear politicians debate what a good tax rate would be, and their assumption in there is basically if they wanted to, they would have the right to tax all of your income. That just seems to be almost like a presupposition many politicians have in talking about taxation today. But that is not the case, biblically speaking. God does not give that authority to the civil magistrate. Now, in saying what I'm saying here and in saying what I'm about to say, I'm not saying that we commit tax evasion. The Warrington Declaration, something I cited last week, it says in Section 1 on Authority, Article 7, we affirm that in instances where a Christian's responsibilities to God and his fellow man are not hindered, the Christian may choose to obey some unjust commands when such commands can be obeyed without engaging in sin. This may be because compliance with the command is done under duress, because compliance is expedient, because it's helpful for you, or because compliance is rendered in an exaggerated fashion in order to further expose the wickedness of the command. And with that, they cite Romans 12.20 and Matthew 5.38 to 42. So basically what that's saying there is sometimes the government does something they shouldn't do. They make a law they shouldn't pass. But because it is not sinful for you to obey this unjust legislation, you should do it anyways because of that wrath, verse 5, because of the consequences of not obeying it. And so moving into the next section, uh, over a course of months, how many I don't really remember, I really thought through a biblical model of uh, taxation. Scripture speaks to, either directly or implicitly, Scripture speaks to every area of life. Not just spiritual things, but also political things. And so because Scripture does that, I went in with a presupposition that Scripture speaks to what is a good tax rate. And, uh, like, that's what was my presupposition. It was scripture has something to say about taxes. I just have to figure out what it is. So my presupposition was scripture speaks on these issues. And so I uh, was looking at it. I, over time, came to what I currently think is the most biblical model of taxation I'm about to present to you. I kind of tentatively came to many of these conclusions over this study. And then I looked at what a guy I like, he died roughly 20 years ago, a theologian named R.J. Rushduni, he had come to many of the same conclusions I had, except because he was a lot smarter and spent a lot more time studying it than I had. He had way better biblical support for it, and also he was able to fill in some gaps I was still missing. And so, uh, basically, from my own study of this over the course of months, from uh, listening to what he has to say, a lot of what I'm about to say here 
comes from some of the stuff he had said, and some of it comes through things that I haven't really seen him speak for or against it. It is just me trying to get more into application with this. And so first I want to look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 15 and 17. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 15, and then I'm going to skip a verse and drop down to verse 17. So, turning there, this is uh, Samuel when uh, Israel is demanding a king. This was when they're about to get King Saul, the first king, the king before David, and they're demanding a king. And Samuel tells them, here are all the horrible things that are going to happen to you if you put a king over yourself rather than having the system of judges that Israel had had for the last 400 years. And so he's going through all this list of all these horrible things that the king will do to them. And in verse 15, he says, He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And then verse 17, He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. And so this is, uh, I had heard it from someone else, so this was pretty early on in my trying to understand biblical taxation, would be 10% is an unjust amount. The government is wrong. I would argue sinning before God if it charges 10% or higher taxes. But I didn't want to stop there. I didn't want to just stop with this general, okay, scripture supports that taxation should be below 10%. So I guess like 8 or 9% is all right. Like that was kind of where I was for a while because I didn't really understand something better than that, more specific than that. But as I looked on, I came to more decisive claims, decisive arguments than uh, just that. But first, I just want to look at this. Why 10%? Well, 10%, also you, you might think the tithe. The tithe is 10%. The tithe is God's. If you want to word it this way, you could say the tithe is God's spiritual tax. And so a government that takes 10% taxation from its citizens is more or less saying that it is God. It is basically the government implicitly saying, I am God and I make the rules and not God. It is the government requiring from its citizens what God requires from its people and thus the government making itself in essence equal to God when a government says that they want a 10% or higher taxation. So I would say it is unjust. I would even use the word, word tyrannical if a government has a 10% or higher taxation. And also, that would not just be your income tax, though our income tax is already above 10%. This would be all taxation combined. The income tax, property tax, sales tax, federal tax, state tax, whatever other tax you want to mention, all of it combined should be below 10% because in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel says to the Israelites, it is an oppressive thing if a government taxes you 10%. Not just like, oh, you know, that's, they shouldn't do that, but like it's okay if they do. Samuel says, here's a judgment that will happen on you, Israel, if you have a king for yourselves. He will be so bold that he will take a 10% tax for himself. Pretty crazy because in today's world, in America today, we would love a 10% tax rate. If all of our taxes were combined, property tax, income tax, whatever, if all of it combined was only 10% of our income, we would love that because it would be a fraction of what our current taxation level is. Yet the Bible calls even that 10% level tyrannical and oppressive. Or at least it calls it oppressive, and so I'm saying by being oppressive, that implies it is also tyrannical. 
And so moving on from just this vague idea of a biblical tax rate is less than 10%. I want to get more specific than that. So I want to turn to Exodus now. Flip back almost to the beginning. Second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. Yahweh also spoke to Moses saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a price of atonement for himself to Yahweh when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 jiras. Half a shekel as a contribution to Yahweh. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to Yahweh. The rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to Yahweh to make atonement for your souls. And you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may be a remembrance for the sons of Israel before Yahweh to make atonement for your souls. So this is commonly called the head tax, sometimes also called the poll tax. And it was, in a, I think you could argue, the only civil, like the only, I guess you could say political, the only non-religious tax that we really have to go off of in Old Testament Israel that wasn't like some political invader forcing a tax on Israel after conquering Jerusalem and making them be obedient to it. Like, that's a little bit of a different story because that's like someone else forcing you to pay them because they took you over a military conquest. As far as like God ordained, I think this really is the only civil tax we can argue for from the Old Testament besides the less specific below 10% we get from 1 Samuel 8. And uh, so this, like I said, this is the head tax, sometimes called the poll tax. Notice only males 20 years old and upward had to pay this. So males below 20 and females were not taxed at all. And it was half a shekel of silver. Um, and so we'll get a little bit more into some of those things as we get further in. But ne next I want to say this tax here, it, it was not annual. It was not annual like I would say an annual tax would be today at first. But if we look further on in scripture, it looks like later on this half shekel head tax did later on become annual. So let's jump now to Second Chronicles. Little, I know we're, we're jumping around a little bit, but this one is a little bit past where we were a little bit ago with 1 Samuel, Second Chronicles chapter 24. We normally spend so much time just being in Romans the entire time, it probably seems weird to jump around this much. So Second Chronicles chapter 24, I'm going to read verses 5 and 6, then jump down to verse 9. So it says, and he gathered the priests and Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather money from all Israel to repair the house of your God annually, and you shall do the matter quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king called for Jehoiada, the chief priest, and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the levy fixed by Moses, the servant of Yahweh on the congregation of Israel for the tent of the testimony. Dropping down to verse 9. And they made a proclamation in Judah and Jerusalem to bring to Yahweh the levy fixed by Moses, 
the servant of God on Israel in the wilderness. So that refers to a levy to a tax fixed by Moses that was annual. I think it is referring to that head tax from Exodus 30 and that at some point in Israel's history, that head tax went from a periodical tax to an annual tax to one taken from Israel every year. And so now with that in mind, how would we on that foundation apply this concept to today? Well, one, I think an ideal biblical tax rate, only males 20 and above would pay taxes. Men below 20 and females would not pay taxes based on the biblical mandate I see in the Old Testament. So really, feminists should love my idea of taxation. It means they don't have to pay taxes at all. Now, I don't think they would, first and foremost, because it's a Christian idea of taxation and feminists aren't usually in support of Christian ideas. And they also wouldn't like it because uh, this takes a lot of money away from the government. And uh, feminists practically, for all intents and purposes, see the government as their husband and the father of their children, so they probably wouldn't like that either. But uh, another thing with this, one could even argue, based on Ezra 7.24, I don't know if I'd go this far, maybe in more study, eventually I would, but based on Ezra 7.24, you could potentially even argue that pastors would be exempt from this. So this would be a tax on males 20 and over, excluding pastors and maybe a couple other groups of people. And uh, I think this would be the only form of taxation that we would have to pay in my ideal, in my opinion, biblical tax rate society. There would be no sales tax. There would definitely be no property tax. Basically, what the property tax says is the government says you don't really own your property. You just rent it from us. And uh, that is not the case. There would be no property tax, I think, in a biblical nation. Uh, so the custom of Romans 13.7, referring to the indirect taxes, I think uh, that would uh, probably be something that would not even exist in a biblical society that was having a biblical tax rate. Uh, a government that was operating under Scripture 100% would not require what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 7 as custom in uh, that biblical society. Now, we are best to pay it right now to avoid the wrath of the civil magistrate. Also, when a government is charging it, to be obedient to Romans 13. I think we, at this point, in this moment where we are, we should pay it. You, don't, you want to keep paying your property tax so the government doesn't come take your house away from you. But I think in an ideal biblical society that those would be a thing of the past. And now, um, applying this today would use the half-shekel tax of the Old Testament Israel at the time of Moses as its foundation. Moving on to uh, making sure we are trying to understand how to apply it today. Uh, and so we can understand this in a few different ways. We have to try to figure out how would we apply a half shekel annual tax based on the Old Testament to today. And I think there are different ways we could de debate how to uh, apply that today. <clears throat> I'm going to give three examples. <clears throat> These are kind of just three different examples I've more or less come up with on my own. Two of them I do not think is what we should go with. One of them is, so I will explain each of them, saving the one I think is most accurate for last. So the half shekel of silver, we would, one idea, one approach is you would say, it was a half shekel of silver in Moses' time, and so today every male should, uh, every male 20 and up should give to the government annually a half shekel of silver by weight. So a shekel is just under two-fifths of an ounce. It's like 
0.388 or something like that. We can, we can uh, just say just under two-fifths. We can just round it off a little bit. Just under, it's about two-fifths of an ounce. And so half of that, half of a shekel, approximately one-fifth of an ounce of silver. Uh, today, I looked at this up last night, so this should be pretty accurate to right now. Silver is roughly $20 an ounce, a little bit more than that, not quite $21, roughly $20 an ounce. And so $20 divided by five would give you $4, a $4 per year annual tax. Now, as great as we would say that would be, this is one that I think would be, the, um, would be not how I would apply it today. Another one we could say it would be a half shekel of gold by weight. And now the argument for that is uh, prior to King Solomon, from what I've heard in various studies of scripture, prior to King Solomon, silver was actually worth more than gold. Uh, if you remember reading under King Solomon's reign, it talks about how Solomon made silver as stone. For like, it was like I guess you, you would be as used to seeing silver as you would be seeing like stone, or I forget exactly how it words it, but Solomon made silver plentiful and Jerusalem, and I heard that it was actually that before that abundance of silver during Solomon's reign, silver was actually more valuable by weight than gold was prior to King Solomon. And so if that is true, then we could on that principle say, well, they used the more precious metal. Silver was more precious than gold at the time this was instituted. And so today we would do a half shekel of the more precious of the two. Now we would do a half shekel of gold. Uh, and so that would be one way I could see someone wanting to apply it today. Whatever is the monetary value of a half shekel of gold, that per year is the tax rate. And so I looked it up last night. Gold, it looks like an, per ounce, it's approximately $1,700 right now. And so, like I said, a half shekel is approximately a fifth of an ounce. And so, you know, you divide 1,700 by five, and we would get a tax rate of not much not much above $300 a year right now if you were to do a half shekel of gold per year or the monetary value of that. And this one I also disagree with. I'm just saying this to give some different ideas on it. And so what I would go with is I would say half a month's income would be the tax rate. Every male 20 years old and upward gives basically the equivalent of half a month's income. Uh, the reason for this, there is evidence um, one of them coming from a commentary on Leviticus to say that a shekel was approximately a month's income for an Old Testament Israelite at the time of Moses. A shekel was approximately one month's income. So half a shekel, half a month's income. And so you take 100, you divide it by 24, you get 4.17. So 4.17%. I would, I would think I would argue for a 4.17% tax rate. But I also have uh, something to say with that. It wouldn't just be a flat tax of 4.17%. Let's turn back to that passage in Exodus 30. Exodus 30. <clears throat> and then in verse 15, it says, The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to Yahweh to make atonement for your souls. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less. So at the very least, that verse would say that a graduated income tax is wrong. Our different tax brackets, where the more money you make, the more percentage of your income the government gets to take. That is wrong. At the very least, 
we would have to argue for a flat tax rate. But here's the thing, even a flat tax rate still has the rich paying more and the poor paying less. Because if you make, let's just use nice easy numbers, a million dollars a year versus $100,000 a year. We're just gonna use these big numbers to make it nice and easy. With a million dollars a year and you pay, make it nice and easy, 5%, you pay 5% taxes on a million dollars a year, that's $50,000. That is half of the $100,000 person a year's annual income when he's only paying $5,000. So that's still the rich paying more and the poor paying less. Notice it doesn't just say that. It says then the half shekel. Whether they were rich or poor, they didn't pay the same rate. They paid the same amount with the head tax in Exodus 30. And so I would not argue for a 4.17% tax rate. What I would argue for is a 4.17% of the average income of the previous year. This is where I stand right now as I do more studying to this. Maybe I'll change my opinion, maybe I won't. Maybe I will stick with this for the rest of my life as what I think a biblical tax rate is. But I think a biblical tax rate would be males 20 years old and upwards pay a flat tax amount, not a flat tax rate, a flat tax amount of everyone pays 4.17% of the previous year's income. <clears throat> and so I wanted to give an example of what this might look like. I did some Googling. People really like to give the median income of a year. Median is not exactly the same thing as average, so I wanted to try to find something a little bit better than that. And so after some Googling, I found the 2020, two years ago, the real per capita income of two years ago was approximately $53,500. And so we give the exact amount there, where I give an approximation. It was actually 53,504 was the exact amount I saw on the website. So you take that, you divide it by 24 to give half a month, and you get $2,229.33. So with my idea of what I believe from scripture is a biblical tax rate, in the year 2021, every male 20 years old and upwards would pay $2,229.33 in taxes to the government. And that would just be to the government, period. State and federal government have to split up that percentage, that amount of money, however they want to break it down. That is how much taxes you pay, period, and you don't pay a dime more than that. You don't have sales tax, you don't have property tax, you really don't have income tax. It's just when tax season comes due, you write your check for $2,229.33, and you're good on taxes. And if you make $20,000 a year, you pay that same amount. If you make $20 million a year, you pay the same amount. The rich do not pay more, and the poor do not pay less than the half shekel, which to them was about half a month's income for the average person. And so I'm basing mine on the same, half a month's income for the average person. Women would not pay any taxes at all. Men under 20 would not pay taxes, only males 20 years old and upwards. The idea there probably was more as a family tax because there were not a whole ton of single people above the age of 20 unless they were widows or widowers around in ancient Israel. And so in a sense, yes, women were paying taxes because it was the husband had to pay taxes and it's not his money and her money, it's their money. And so in a way, I guess I would let single women above 20 get away without paying taxes because they do not have a husband who has to pay taxes. But okay, I'm not going to start taxing single women above 20 just to try to make a 
more taxes for the government than what I believe the, the Bible would allow me to. Maybe some could make the argument for it somewhere. As of right now, I'm not going to. But basically, I just wanted to say, that's what Romans 13, 5 through 7 had to say. And here is what I think would be a more biblical tax rate for a flat amount of 4.17% of the average income the previous year. And so I guess in conclusion of all of that, uh, we are to pay our oppressive taxes that we have now, pay those taxes, and pray that God brings a more biblical and less oppressive tax rate in our nation. Also, we are to pray with our mouths and pray with our feet. What that means is we pray that God does it, but also we work towards the ends we are praying God to do. We say, God, I'm going to go do this work in your name for your glory, and I pray that you bless my work so that it is profitable and I do not work in vain. Uh, Psalm 127, unless the uh, laborer, unless the workman, sorry, unless the Lord blesses the building, the builder builds the house in vain. So unless God blesses our efforts, we labor in vain. Pray with our mouths and with our feet. Do the work while praying God blesses it with success. Uh, and this is probably an impossible task to accomplish in our lifetimes, but we do what we can to potentially make it a reality in our grandchildren's lifetime. Even that's probably way too short of a spectrum. Maybe in our grandchildren's grandchildren lifetime, we could see something like a biblical tax rate come to fruition. And as we work towards that end, we honor and submit to those in political authority as much as we can do so without sinning before God. And um, that's everything. So let's close in prayer. God, thank you for today. Thank you for how you have blessed us. May we glorify you with all we do. Help us to rightly submit to government, to not submit to sinful edicts and sin before you in that way, but also to not uh, quote scripture in order to let us sinfully disobey government. But may we, uh, in our relationship to our government, whatever it may be, honor you in all of it and submit to you in it. In your name we pray. Amen. So that was this week's episode of Theana Money. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Satisfies me, your law is sweet, oh.